There are some words that have become Christian over time, and I think humility is one of those words. It's a, it's a word we hear at church all the time, and I think, to a large extent, has lost a lot of its impact. So this morning, if you forgive me, I'm not going to say humility as much as I'm going to say humiliation, because I think that's going to help us to really understand the depths of that word. So this morning, uh, we're going to talk a lot about humiliation. But I don't want you to uh, be put off by that this morning. I want you to see, as we look at Jesus in John 13, beauty and intent in his own self-humiliation. There is something truly beautiful that we should see about Jesus as he bends down to wash the disciples' feet. You see, Jesus, Jesus humiliated himself so that the disciples could be clean. The day after this foot washing, Jesus humiliated himself even more by allowing himself, the creator of the universe, to be nailed to a cross by his own creation. And he did that so that all of his chosen ones could be clean. So we're watching Jesus the night before he died act out and explain what is happening as he hangs on the cross. So, in John 13, we should see Jesus, who is so confident in his knowledge of his own identity, of who he was, that he allows this identity, this being of himself, to drive himself forwards in self-humiliating love. Let me see if I can convince you of that in verses 1 to 5. I've pulled out just a few key words, and I'll put those up on the screen, underlined a few of them to kind of emphasise. So, reading verses 1 to 5 of chapter 13. Before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and, taking a towel, tied it round his waist, Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Jesus knew and so he loved. Jesus knew who he was and so he bent down and he washed. I think that's the summary of what we see in Jesus here. Jesus loving because He knows who he is. And as we keep reading through the chapter, we see that Jesus wants us to do exactly the same thing. He wants us to copy him. He wants us to love just like him. And he wants us to do that because we know who we are in him. Verse 17 uh, reads like this. If you know these things, Jesus says to his disciples, to us this morning, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. If we know, then we will love. So let me put that up with the other one. Jesus knew and so he loved. We know and so we love. Like Jesus, all of our loving, if it's going to be loving at all, must first have its source in our knowing, in who, uh, in our knowing of who we are. Well, let's first uh, begin and look at what Jesus knew about himself. In verse 1, we read that Jesus knew his hour had come. 
You see, Jesus had left the glories of heaven on a great rescue mission. And this rescue mission was all focusing in on his humiliation at the cross. He did lots of other things along the way. He taught, uh, he healed people, he did miracles, but all of it is focusing eventually, relentlessly on the cross. So back in chapter 2 of John, he's at a wedding and he does an amazing miracle, but his time had not yet come. The miracle was not what he'd come for. He's teaching in the temple in chapter 7, really upsetting the religious leaders. And they want to arrest him, but they can't because his time, his hour had not yet come. But now his hour has come. Within 24 hours, Jesus, the Son of God, will be dead and buried. His hour has come. And so, knowing that his hour had come, knowing that everything he had come for was happening, he acts out of that coming humiliation and washes his disciples' feet. Now, let's be absolutely clear about this, and I think uh, the people who are here for Family Sunday School might understand this slightly better, but washing the dirt and the mess off people's feet in Jesus' time was a disgusting and a demeaning job. Open sandals, dusty roads... No rubbish collection, animals wandering about everywhere. Those feet were filthy. Not even Jewish slaves would be required to wash someone's feet. It was that disgusting a job. But just as dinner is served, Jesus got right down on the floor. Because his time had come, it says, there was no limit to how low Jesus will go to clean his followers. And it's obvious, isn't it, as we read through the story, they have no idea what Jesus is doing. But once they'd seen him die and rise again, once they had the Holy Spirit in their heart to show them, then they understood. So firstly, Jesus knew his hour had come, but he also knew more than that. He knew his own, or as verse 18 puts it, he knew the ones that he had chosen. Just think about this for a moment. He's sitting there, fully aware of all of these things that were that were understanding, and he looks around the table at these disciples, and he says, mine, 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 mine. You belong to me, you are my own. He knows that. Jesus is not there hoping that some will turn to him out of the goodness of their hearts. No, he looks at them and he says, mine, you are chosen. He knew his own, and he will do whatever is needed to clean them, even humiliate himself. Verse 3 says that Jesus knows his own authority. Let me tell you a common story. People like you and me, ordinary people, get themselves in a big mess and they need some hero who is powerful and mighty to rescue them. And the hero comes with strength to bash whatever is threatening you. That's the story, right? Superman or the Avengers or whatever story you like to read. The big, strong, powerful one comes and bashes to win the day. They're just stories, but they express in our hearts what we think we need, what we long for. But Jesus is no storybook hero. Here he is with all authority in his hands. And he rises from his seat and he humiliates himself at their feet. And there is nobody... And no thing that is making Jesus do this. No body and no thing that is above Jesus. Jesus has all authority. He's not forced into humility. How does he use that unparalleled power, that unparalleled authority? 
He humbles himself. He humiliates himself. You don't see that in the Avengers, do you? Jesus knew his place. Sat there in this upper room, confined to a human body. He knew where he had come from, the glories of heaven with the Father. And he knew where he was going to return to the Father. You see, he'd left the Father to rescue his chosen ones. And he knows that he will be glorified when he returns. But first there is humiliation. Just think about this. Jesus takes the filthy feet of a dirty rebel in his hands. And all the while he knows that his rightful place is in heaven. And that is true. And yet he gave that up to wash that dirty foot as a picture of what he will do for us. God with God. Kneeling on the floor. Washing. Loving. Jesus knew his place. And incredibly, this really struck me as I was studying the passage this week. All the way through this, Jesus knows his opposition, doesn't he? You see, it's woven throughout the story, this opposition of Satan and Judas. And it's clear that Jesus knows exactly what is going on. He knows what Satan is up to. He knows what Judas is about to do. But remember, all authority is in Jesus' hands. This is not a struggle between Jesus and Satan, as if Jesus might win or Satan might win. While Satan is doing everything he can to oppose Jesus, all he is doing is exactly what Jesus wants to happen. Let me show you just how feeble Satan's opposition is here. And I think Jesus is, like, he's got a smile on his lips as he uh, quotes from Psalm 41 in verse 18. So Psalm Psalm 41, verse 18, he says, this scripture is being fulfilled tonight. Now, if we had more time, we could turn to Psalm 41 and look at the whole context over here. But I want you to think about this slightly differently than that. Just stop and think what this means about the battle between Jesus and Satan. Jesus is so far ahead of Satan's plans that he can point to a psalm written a thousand years ago and say, I knew that this was going to happen. Satan is just doing what I planned all along. As we go through the story and we see over and over again that Jesus knows what Judas is doing and the disciples are clueless, Jesus is just underlining in ballpoint pen, I know, I am in control. Satan will not win, he cannot win. In fact, Satan's plan to defeat Jesus is so feeble that Jesus uses that plan to boost the faith of his followers. Look at that in verse 19. I am telling you this now, telling you all of what is happening behind the scenes, I'm telling you this now, so that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Jesus so far above Satan's feeble opposition that his best shot at Jesus was planned a thousand years before and is used by Jesus to boost the faith of his disciples. Isn't that incredible? I think that is just amazing. But it's not just the power of Jesus that is is at work here as he opposes Satan. Do you see also the compassion of Jesus as he looks Judas in the eye? 
Jesus describes himself as troubled in spirit in verse 21. He's upset at the thought of Judas, his friend, who's going to betray him. This is Judas whose feet he just washed. This is Judas who's probably lying on a couch right next to him. John on one side, ready to lean back and talk to him. Judas on the other side, ready to be given the the morsel of food. Judas right there, his close friend. So it's not the case that Jesus' authority and control of the situation means that he's completely detached from what is going on. He is troubled at the betrayal of his close friend. And yet, what happens? Jesus is battering Satan in this. How does he do that? Is it with strength and might? No, it is humiliation. Jesus' humiliation steals from Satan's hand his one weapon, which is to accuse. So Satan, the accuser, cannot accuse those that Jesus has washed. So he bends down in humiliation. He washes their feet. A picture of dying on the cross, his blood flowing so that we can be washed. And, Jesus, uh, and Satan can no longer accuse us of anything because we are clean. So take that all together. Jesus knew his identity and so he loved I think it's worth pausing here, isn't it? It's possible in a sermon to chop the passage up and you look at this bit and look at this bit and look at this this bit. So step back for a moment, church. Look at Jesus, your teacher and your Lord. This is Jesus, full of authority, full of knowledge, secure in his identity. And he bends down and he humiliates himself to clean his chosen ones. He strips off his outer clothes so that he even looks like a slave. And he gets down and dirty. He gets down on the floor and gets busy in the dirt. It's important here, isn't it? Jesus is not pressing pause on his deity while he does this unpleasant work. This very act of humiliation in washing their feet is his deity manifesting itself. As he hangs on the cross, he is not pausing being God. He is being God as he humiliates himself to save rebels like you and me. Church, look at Jesus, your teacher and Lord, and see what God is like. Teacher and Lord and foot washer, all at the same time. Of course, not everyone is comfortable with this kind of situation. How does Peter react in verse 8? You shall never wash my feet. Well, that sounds like Peter, doesn't it? Because he's immediately wrong. You will never wash my feet. Well, actually, Jesus will wash his feet. Because if Jesus does not wash Peter, then Peter will not have a share with him. That share being like an inheritance, becoming his brother, uh, inheriting glory. And of course, it can't just refer to the literal washing on the night, can it? Otherwise, what would it mean that Jesus washed Judas' feet? No, no, this is how we know that we're not really talking about washing and soap and water here. We're talking about the cross and the blood and our hearts. You see, without Jesus' blood shed for you on that cross, without the cleansing that comes as you turn to Jesus from your rebellion and accept his sacrifice in your place, without any of that, there is no inheritance with Jesus in glory. But the good news is this. If, like Peter, you will stop resisting 
And if you can accept that you're in need of a good clean, well, you can be clean. You see, Jesus himself in verse 10 sort of bends the analogy that we've got in, uh, in this whole thing to make this clear. And, and um, Morris alluded to this when he prayed for us in our prayer of confession. There is a thorough washing that only Jesus can do through his blood that will certainly and completely clean you forever. A once for all washing. That's the bath that suddenly appears in here. You've had a bath, you're fully clean. You'll never need another wash quite like it. But yes, your feet will still get dirty. You will sin and confess and sin and confess and come to the Lord for a different cleansing after that first initial once for all cleansing. And let me say to you uh, this morning, if you have never come to Jesus to be cleaned, then you can do it right now. You can sit in your chair and stop pretending that you're already clean. You can stop pretending that you can make yourself clean. And instead you can turn to the God of the universe and let him clean you by his blood. And if you're sat there this morning and you are trusting in Jesus, but you've never been baptised, this is a great opportunity for me to remind you that you should talk to an elder about getting baptised. Because then you can come to the front and you can act out in baptism the washing that has happened in your heart already. But there's more than that in the passage for us, isn't there? For those of us who've already been cleaned by Jesus. Let me read verses 12 to 17. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your teacher and Lord, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done for you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Jesus wants us to do what he has done. And we will only do that if we know who we are in Jesus. So let me ask you that this morning. Brothers and sisters, do you know who you are in Jesus? There's not even a complete list of all the things you are, but these are all things we can find in our passage this morning. So let me start by looking you in the eye and saying, if you are washed and cleansed by Jesus, then you are loved. You are loved by him. Verse 1, that love that goes all the way to the end, to the fullest extent. The love that motivated Jesus to come from heaven in the first place is for you. And it's not a reluctant love. It's not a half-hearted love. A love that goes to the very limit. How can you doubt the extent of Jesus' love for you when you see him down in the dirt washing the disciples' feet? Do not doubt the extent of his love for you when you see him hanging on a cross with all authority, one word, and he can stop it. And he does that for you. And because we are loved, we are his. We, in this room, are his chosen ones. We belong to him. He looks at us like he did at the disciples and he says, mine, 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 mine. He looks at us and he says, clean, 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 clean. 
Because of Jesus, we are clean. And I don't want you to rush past that this morning, to brush it away. I don't think there's any greater barrier to living for Jesus each day than that nagging sense that you're still tainted by the sin that you see in your life. And that that taint keeps you from God's presence somehow. So listen again this morning. You are clean if you are trusting in Jesus. And so you do not need to hide from God. You don't need to pretend that you don't mess up. You don't need to do a bunch of stuff to make yourself clean again. Jesus says, no, because of my blood, you are clean. And you are. Do you believe this one? You are sent. Like, how is this possible? For reasons that I honestly struggle to understand sometimes. Jesus has decided to use people like these people in this room to proclaim this amazing news of a humiliated saviour to the world. And honestly, which one of us feels up to the job? But we are sent. We are sent with the full authority of Jesus and the Father, and he sends us out. Listen, church, we are blessed, verse 17. We need to stop looking for the blessing of God in the nice stuff that we might get, in the good grades, or the promotion, or a spouse, or a parking space, whatever it is. Stop looking there and look instead at Jesus and see the full blessing of God for you. In Jesus, we have every spiritual blessing. So collect those together. Because we are loved, because we are his, because we are clean, because we are sent, because we are blessed, then we must love. Verses 14 and 15, I'll repeat them again. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. I've given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. Ought and should, we can misunderstand those words. We can think it's like you must eat your dinner if you want your pudding. Think of it like this instead. Think of it like a law of nature, yeah? A rock must fall if it's dropped. Somebody who knows the cleansing of Jesus, somebody who's been touched by the humiliated Son of God, must do what Jesus did. Jesus knew his identity as the Son of God, and so he loves without limit. And if we can grasp anything of our identity in Jesus, then we must love without limit. And so the path that we walk now as we follow Jesus is a path down in humiliation as we love one another without limit, secure in our identity in Jesus. And let me quickly just say the opposite is also true. There is no greater horror than a puffed up proud person who claims to follow Jesus but refuses to get down in the dirt for the brother and sister. The thrust of this says that such a proud person could never have met the humiliated Jesus. Because if you've been touched by Jesus, you must do what Jesus did. So let me finish where I started. I hope I haven't brought you down too much into the weeds. Zoom out again. Don't lose sight of our beautiful saviour Jesus. Beautiful Jesus who is so certain of who he is that he humiliates himself to rescue his people. 
And don't lose sight of who you are. You have a transformed identity in Jesus that allows you to love like he does. So let me pray that we will do that, that we will see Jesus clearly, that we'll know who he is, and that we'll follow his path. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we come before you and we say, wow. It is unimaginable that you, God from God, with all authority and power and might, might humiliate yourself for us. That just blows our mind. Thank you, Jesus, that you would leave your rightful place in heaven and humiliate yourself for us. Thank you, Jesus, that you would submit to a cross, that you would submit to your blood flowing, that we might be cleansed by it. Sorry, Jesus, for our pride that keeps us from bending to receive your cleaning, or from bending ourselves to humbly love each other. Please, Jesus, open our eyes to see you in your beautiful humility. Please, Jesus, open our eyes that we might see our identity in you. And please, Holy Spirit, would you strengthen us with hope and with power to live and to love like Jesus. Amen.